I can't control God. It's a risk you take, you know? I can't control the wind yeah. or God. So then it's, five seconds then I will call out the tour director, but I'm just saying that if the wind blows, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't control God. Talk to him. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. Anz Jabor. She's back. Francis Tiafo. He's back, still here. Almost in the top ten. Let's start in Charleston, where in a rematch of last year's final, we got a reversal of result with Anz Jabor beating Belinda Bencic. Yeah, it's been a tough few months for Anz. She didn't do that well at the Australian Open. She had a minor surgery on her knee shortly after that in February, having to pull out of the Middle East swing, which was really disappointing for her. And then across the Sunshine Double, just won one match in singles and doubles. To be more specific with regard to her results, she made the semis of one of the Adelaide tournaments ahead of the Australian Open, second round in Australia, as you said, having to pull out of the Middle East swing, and then second round at Indian Wells, losing first round in Miami. So you're right, it has been a a pretty down year for her so far. Mm -hmm. And I think over the last few months, people have been talking about this purported WTA Big 3, and folks have kind of moved on from her, just counted her out of the conversation. But let's start talking about Jabor again. We're back on clay. Uh, I want to say her favorite surface, but I don't know. (laughs) She seems to excel on all of them now. The thing about Charleston is that it often in the past has been a pretty good predictor of success at Roland Garros. Mary Pierce won Charleston in 2000. Of course, she went on to win the French Open that year. Then you also look at folks like, obviously, Serena, (laughs) Justine. Ostapenko was the runner-up in 2017 in Charleston, where she won Roland Garros. It's green clay, but I think there seems to be something about the tournament and the atmosphere that players really love. It has been voted the favorite WTA tournament before. It uh, has been in operation since 1973. It was originally at Hilton Head, South Carolina, and moved to Charleston. Formerly known as the Family Circle Cup. The Volvo Car Open. It has had a number of sponsors, but it is... I believe the oldest continuously operating WTA tournament on the circuit right now. And you could say, well, maybe one of the reasons why Charleston becomes a predictor of success is because there's so few clay tournaments, specifically on the WTA side, that mimic French Open conditions. I mean, not that green clay is the red clay on Philippe Chatrier, but... But weather-wise, it's probably not that different. This week, the players had to endure different types of climate, just like the players at the Masters, which is a short drive away, really. And a few of the other WTA lead-up tournaments are not anything like Roland Garros. They're going to Stuttgart, which is indoor clay, which is their big WTA-only clay tournament. Madrid, which was blue clay for one year, which is played at altitude, completely different conditions. Mm-hmm. And Rome is is really the the genuine article. Getting back to Jabour, she got to kind of ease into the tournament. She had a straight sets win against Serenko, then Dolahide, Kalinskaya with a bagel, and then f- 
the top four seeds reached the semifinals, which is a very rare occurrence. With all the rain, we got to what would have been finals day, and there was still one semifinal that was yet to be completed. On Sunday, Jessica Pagula and Bencic had to come back out to complete their semi with Bencic up a set and both players in a tie break with Pagula up 4-2. Jesse comes out, wins the first point up 5-2 and not one more point did she win. <laughs> Five in a row for Bencic to book her spot in the final just like an hour later, hour and a half later. Yes, it was horrendous to watch. It was not what the the, uh, the result that I was looking for. But... I mean, Bencic, when she's on, you just cannot argue with her game. Like, sometimes she plays video game tennis. This counterpunching that's just so accurate. She takes the ball so early. I totally disagree. She was completely dictating play with Jesse, Especially in that tiebreak. That's not good. For Ons, it's her fourth career title out of 11 finals. And Bencic is normally a very tough out for Jabor. And you can see why. Like, she can neutralize a lot of the kind of the magic that Ons can produce. But in the final, it was a tight first set. It really could have gone either way in a tie break. But Ons ran away with the second one. It was not very competitive. Belinda put up a little bit of a fight toward the end of the set. Felt like she was getting a little momentum back. But Ons was just, uh, she was just on. The crowd was so into her. She was able to... I mean, this magnificent point that surely you've seen going around the internet with the tweener and then this beautiful backhand pass, which is really the pass is the star of the point for me. I'm not big on tweeners, but that one was hard to deny. It's the fourth title of her career from 11 total finals. She made six finals last year, including being runner up at two slams. Which is why I say be cautious when you're sort of counting people out of the top echelon of the WTA, because I really do think that Ons is there. We didn't really know where her body was, uh, you know, injury-wise for those first few months, but if she is healthy, she's shown that she knows how to win. Like, she knows how to beat the people she's supposed to beat. She can reach finals. Now she just has to improve that finals record a bit. This could be a huge stretch for her, being healthy, heading into the clay season, and then also the grass season, she is best Mm -hmm. equipped to handle both. Because so many players, they start the year playing exclusively hard courts, and then it's like, well, I guess we won't hear from them again until the U.S. Open. (laughs) Cough, cough, Naomi Osaka for the majority of her career. Madison Keys has made a semi at the French Open. I mean, she's won Charleston as well. Yeah, I, she improved her game on clay so much throughout her career. And people like Petra Gavidova really learned how to excel on clay, has won a number of titles, semifinals at Roland Garros. Kazatkina had a good week. She beat Madison Keys in three sets to reach the semifinals. As I mentioned, all four top seeds reached the semifinals. That's Pagula, Jabour, Bencic, and Kazatkina. The weather in the southern U.S. has been an absolute nightmare for this tournament, for Houston especially, for the Masters in golf. <laughs> on uh, on Saturday, on day three of the Masters, they just canceled play in the middle of the afternoon because it was pouring. It played a big part in Miami as well the week before. Mm-hmm. So this has been ongoing for a while. The Houston tournament was a complete mess. I mean, like oh. the, the worst effect of, the, of them all. It almost totally destroyed the tournament. So moving on to Houston, this is the the U.S. Clay Court Championships. 
Uh, it's usually full of Americans. John Isner is usually there, Jack Sock, etc. Steve Johnson got a wild card. And uh, an American won this time. Francis Tiafo goes to number 11, plays four matches in two days, a Saturday and Sunday because of the weather. M- rises to number 11 in the rankings. Yes. What, you said what did I say? Francis Tiafo goes to number 11. It was a bit... Oh, well, okay. He <laughs> improves to number 11, uh, almost in the top 10. But his his career high ranking, it wasn't exactly it wasn't like a murderer's row of opponents, but a title is a title, cool. and if you can do it in two days, on Saturday he beat Steve Johnson and Jason Kubler, and Sunday Brower and Echeverry in the final, and Echeverry was a runner up in Santiago as well. For me, the biggest takeaway from this tournament was just how fire Francis's kit was. <laughs> uh, People always talk about how only Francis could wear that kit. Only he could get away with whatever. But the color on this kit, on the clay, was just popping. Yeah, we were talking about this last night. I don't know. I'm sure I've said it before, too. But I don't know how to feel about only Francis could pull this off. Because people say it about a number of his kits. And I think the answer is only somebody who is cool can pull off some of these kits. Like the creamsicle-looking one at the Australian Open that looked like a jumper. I'm sure other people could have made it look cool, but they were just not in attendance. Nobody had the range. What do you mean by cool? I mean, just... I mean, that's subjective. Of course it is. But Francis has a way of carrying off really any outfit. It was the first time that Francis played a tournament as the top seed in his career. And obviously, he's now one for one in converting from that position. <laughs> With all the delays and going deep into the tournament, winning it, he pulled out of Monte Carlo shortly after winning. I'm racking my brain trying to think of why <laughs> why certain players wouldn't have pulled out of Houston to go straight to Monte Carlo. And anything that I say would be reckless speculation, so I'm not going to say it. He pulled out of Monte Carlo. And then stayed in Houston and lost his first match. Francis obviously stayed and won all of his matches, which is great. But he has also pulled out of Monte Carlo. Well, the issue here is that the tournament was so delayed that some first round matches were still being played on Friday. And Saturday. So by that time, players who would have like waited to see if they won a few rounds before deciding on the following week didn't have that luxury. Right. And Monte Carlo matches started on Sunday. Not the the usual Monday. Francis is up to number 11, as you said. Uh, I mean, still just the second title of his career, which I think is the part that I want to see more of now. I don't care if they're 250s. (laughs) I don't care where they are. We talked about earlier about part of Francis being a consistent top player is going deep in tournaments week to week. We got to see like one or two titles a year now. (laughs) You know, like that's, that's part of the progress. It doesn't have to be a slam. You know, but yeah. I think he himself is getting that confidence and expecting to show up in Houston as a number one seed and win. Like, this is not a surprise to Francis. He can actually show up in Houston and show out. Right. Because he expects this. Like, you have to get used to winning. Right. Like, winning your last match. Like, it's all well and good to have swag your entire career, but know that the swag has the full belief behind it. Let's, oh, yeah. Let's take off. Now, like, the sky's the limit. I, he believes... He said it after the match that he believes when he's playing well, he's one of the best players in the world. 
So I'm excited. Like, that is the kind of energy we want. Unless you're a racist and don't like to see black people being too confident. R- right. Okay. And that's not about anyone in particular. No, no. I, this time it actually isn't. <laughs> it just actually happens to apply to many people generally. <laughs> historically over the course of doing this show and how black athletes have been talked about and treated yeah so yeah over in Estoril, portugal long long time clay tournament casper rude wins his uh his what his 10th title Mm -hmm. all of them at the 250 level interestingly and nine of them have come on clay he beat the clay court specialist rap (laughs) When he made the finals of the U.S. Open. Yeah. The allegations. And also the one that was off of clay was in California last year, right? Wasn't it? Like a San Diego, Santa Monica oh, yeah. kind of tournament. I, mm-hmm. I think so. So it was like, okay, yeah, he's diversified the portfolio. He's back here after, uh, quite frankly, a terrible year so far. Mm-hmm. Back in familiar territory on a familiar surface winning again. A much needed win. Yeah. Dominic Team was kind of the headline for a lot of that tournament. He won consecutive matches for the first time this year. And the big win was against Ben Shelton, 6-2-6-2. Now, Ben Shelton is, like, untested on clay. So, I know I was excited because I want Dominic back. I think the sport is so much better when he's playing well. I like to watch him play. He has suffered more than enough. And, and people are just rooting for him at this point. But to say that, you know, a, a second round win over Ben Shelton means you're back, I don't know. On Clay, it certainly doesn't. And, and Clay is where Dominic excels the most, of course. He loses in the next round after beating Shelton and then announces that he and Nicolas Massou will be parting ways. Yeah, the posts have been uh, very, it, it seems very amicable. But it is, it seems like it's sad for them, sad for the fans. Maybe he felt like it was time for a change. But Dominic did just win his first round match in Monte Carlo beating Richard Gasquet. Which is not a small feat recently because Richard is back to being a top 50, top 40 player. Mm. He's had a, a very consistent last six to eight months. There was an ATP 250 in Marrakesh, Morocco. Roberto Carballes Baena beat Muller in the final. In Bogota, Tatiana Maria wins the third title of her career, defending her title from last year in beating Peyton Stearns in a three-set final. She's now 3-0 career in WTA finals. <laughs> yes. And Peyton Stearns is a former NCAA Division I champ at University of Texas in Austin, and she will break into the top 100 for the first time. She won the national title in 2022, and getting into the WTA Top 100 the following year is a huge feat, and it's actually pretty unusual. And she credits Daniel Collins as an inspiration, as a collegiate athlete to to make good on the professional tour. Mm-hmm. Tatiana Maria would be somewhere near a career high rank at this point. You'd be looking at like a top 30 player if the Wimbledon points ah. from last year were... On the record. Yeah. She remain she, she holds on to those points from last year, so she's still at number like 71, 72 right now. But this is a 35-year-old woman who's playing some of the best tennis of her career over the last 12 months. And she probably is one of the players most affected by the decision from the tours last year to not award points at mm-hmm. Wimbledon. Totally. 
She was a set away from making the Wimbledon final. <laughs> Crazy. And not to harp on her age, but 35 years old, and I believe she has two children? Yes. And Serena's neighbor and bestie? Maybe not bestie, but... Neighbor. We don't know about bestie. <laughs> no, Serena uh, supposedly had a baby shower for her. Remember? I'm just saying bestie is doing a lot I know. of work. I'm, Caroline was the bestie. There's a lot of besties. One of the best things that happened for me in the last week or so since we recorded was Naomi Osaka giving a sit-down interview to Japanese media. And there was no need for translations for the most part because her answers were in English. Mm -hmm. And it was wild in all the best ways. (laughs) And we got some insight into what's going on with her and her pregnancy what her plans are for a comeback when she would be coming back to the tour when she hopes to and what she wants to do with the rest of her career what are her goals aims aspirations dreams she is ambitious and i'm so here for it so the baby is due in june or july she wants to be back for the australian open she thinks that's very feasible And she plans to win how many more slams? Eight. Eight. And the interview, I mean, the interviewer was so dramatic. The the faces he pulled. He was like, no, no, Australian (laughs) Open. That's too soon. That's too soon. (laughs) And then she goes, well, the baby's due June, July. That gives me this many months. Yeah, totally doable. (laughs) And I, you know, she is a young woman. I hope that she can do it. But I also caution that it's going to be really hard. And if you don't make it to Australia, don't be too hard on yourself, Naomi. Like, it's a lot. She also says that she plans to win the gold medal at the Olympics in Paris next year. Well, maybe not plans, but she really, really wants to. And Is there a distinction between the two for somebody of uh, her caliber? I don't know. I mean, that kind of energy, like, I love to see it. She said, I want the French Olympic gold, period. But the interviewer, like, he was shocked aghast at everything she said it was very entertaining Jeannie Bouchard and Sabine Lissicky were two notable comebacks to the tour last week Lissicky made it through qualifying in Charleston she got a, a wild card into qualifying there she being a past champion Sabine Lissicky and then Jeannie Bouchard won a match in Bogota before well losing mm-hmm Lissicky, uh lost to Dolahide in straight sets, which, I mean, Caroline Dolahide actually had a good tournament. She beat Linda Fruvirtova in singles, and she reached the semis in doubles in Charleston. So keep an eye out for those two. Lissicky famously is a grass court bully, or was, mm-hmm. back in her day. It's been a good four or five years since she's been off the tour consistently. And she's still young enough to give it another goal, provided good health. Yeah. Carlos Alcaraz has another injury issue and will miss Monte Carlo. I notice here that you ignored that I wrote Carlitos. <laughs> I told you. I said on the show I'm not. I'm just not calling him Carlitos. I'll, I'll call him by his Christian name. Charlie? No. <laughs> anyway, Alcaraz will miss Monte Carlo uh, at least with post-traumatic arthritis in his left hand. And he said muscular discomfort in the spine that needs rest. I looked up post-traumatic arthritis because I didn't know what it was. It is a form of osteoarthritis, but it's caused by injury, and it's usually temporary. 
So it's caused by trauma or injury. It's most common in younger people, and it causes pain, swelling, stiffness of the joints. It's an inflammation of the joints, like regular arthritis. And it's typically treated through physiotherapy or low-impact exercise. So it, you know, we don't know the extent of his injury. It could be just a, a, a brief respite. But I'm hoping, you know, really hoping this doesn't become a repeated concern. It seems like a pretty minor issue. Also out of Monte Carlo, Rafa Nadal told us that he was not ready to come back. Mm-hmm. We speculated on when we might see him on the last episode. Shortly thereafter, he withdrew from Monte Carlo. And also, Felix, Mr. Ojeale Sim, yeah. pulled out of Monte Carlo with sighting injury. Somebody who is on the comeback trail, Iga Sviantek, if you recall, she played in Indian Wells and then had to pull out of Miami sighting injury, something that she'd been dealing with for a while. She's back on court practicing and is scheduled to return in Stuttgart where she's the defending champion. I feel like there'll be many places where she'll turn up as the defending champion this year. (laughs) Yeah, yep. We want to do a quick little follow-up on the change to the Wimbledon protocol vis-a-vis Belarusian and Russian players for this year. We got a little bit more information via John Wertheim this week. Yeah, I'm really appreciative of John because he always leaks the emails. (laughs) He just gives you the document. Uh, The... All England Club, the championships, sent an email to Russian and Belarusian players with instructions on how to obtain a visa for the UK and what they need to do in order to play Wimbledon. The big takeaways are that, quote, you are required to confirm that you will participate in the championships in a neutral capacity. Neutral was in quotes. Not express your support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine or receive any funding from Russia and or Belarusian states including sponsorship while participating in the championships. Now I have a question here. Wertheim tweeted that this only bans players receiving funding during the championships. The sentence was written in a confusing way. I don't believe that this sentence says that. This says, receive any funding from Russia and or Belarusian states, comma, including sponsorship while participating. It doesn't say only while participating. Mm-hmm. Even so, how does one prove this? Yeah, it's... Is this anything more than a self-declaration? It's pretty weak. Yeah. There were a couple of commercials, well, not like a 30-second spot where there's acting and stuff, but, you know, social media posts that were advertising for something. And these two just had me floored. I was just beside myself with laughter. The first one <laughs> came from Alexis Ohanian. Was this one laughter or was it horror? It was laughter at how horrific the turn this post took. Yeah. Like, it, it was one thing. It's like and you then, had me in the first half. And then when you realize where it went, it was like, sir, what are we doing here? For an NFT? I wish I. We're still doing NFTs. Well, can you read the copy? <laughs> Quote, Alexis Ohanian's ancestors perished during the Armenian genocide and had their assets seized. That generational trauma is a big reason why he's betting heavily on NFTs and future social networks. 
despite crypto's chilly winter storm. What? What? On earth? Like, you had me until generational trauma, and then it took a real turn. What does this have to do with... What is the correlation? Um, I, I think, I feel like they're making a point about putting your money in more secure investments, like away from banks where they could be seized. During a genocide. Right. Like NFTs are like a Swiss bank, essentially. Mercy. But this is not a secure investment at all. I mean, let's not even talk about like the, the merit of NST, NFTs. This is just absolutely wild. I, <laughs> so that is Serena's man. You know, that's her problem. That's not mine. And then Mr. Berrettini. Now, this was legitimately funny. I almost died. Because here's Matt. Uh, you know, a, a picture of him with a mic looking very handsome. Every day in Italian schools and sports centers, thousands of kids are bullied. And those with dandruff are twice as likely to be. <laughs> what? I was... I mean... I, I'm sure. Like I, 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 I mean, have. This is sim- true. I certainly have sympathy for kids with dandruff. Like it's embarrassing. I mean, this is true. They're adults. I work with somebody who it's like snowing every day indoors. Totally, but like you shouldn't judge these people. Like it's not a hygiene problem. I understand. You know, it's just that I, when I you conjure just, um, bullying, I was just surprised that it went there. It's just a head and shoulders promotional post. I just don't really know why it took that route. He said, I recently supported the Head and & Shoulders and Fare Bene project, and together with them, continue to support the fight against hashtag bullying. Find more information in the at Head & Shoulders bio. I mean, I love that Head & Shoulders is fighting bullying. It was just a surprise. It took a turn. We've got through most of the tennis stuff. I think the last thing I want to talk about before we move into a much more serious portion of the episode is this tidbit that Del Potro is planning to play the U.S. Open this year. He wants to play the U.S. Open one final time, and he hopes that his body allows him to. Yeah, he kind of just dropped that like everybody already knew that. Um, I thought he was retired. But he said, I'm determined to do everything possible to play one last official match at the U.S. Open 2023. And Stacey Allister, the tournament director of the U.S. Open, was like, yep, come on down. (laughs) If you are okay, we are sending you that wild card. Now, when Del Potro appeared to have retired, when when he played the last match of his career to date, that we thought would have been the last one. Mm -hmm. It was a very circuitous way of trying to say, when we thought he (laughs) retired. (laughs) He also spoke... And wrote pretty devastatingly about what that was like for him emotionally and mentally coming to grips with what he was no longer able to do because of his body breaking down. Yeah. And so given that we read his words and listened to him talk about it that way back then, it kind of makes sense that he would want to give it another go if he can. And I hope he's able to do it and have a a better send-off one that's more fitting of the stature of the man in tennis. Because it was not his choice to retire. And, you know, for somebody who was so powerful and could do so many things on court that just amazed people and beat the best players in history, 
to to lose that control like over your your life and your career i don't know what that's like that must be so hard so like this is a way to take that control back and say no i want to i want to go out on my terms now we really did not want to have to record another segment about this stuff but regrettably martina navratilova not only has she not given up the vile anti-trans mission that she's on she's ramped up her efforts i mean this is something that she has been obsessed with for a while remember when she tweeted about this on christmas day christmas day 2021 tweeted stuff from the lgb alliance which we'll get into in a little bit uh recently retweeted and replied to people uh on some things that had nothing to do with sport this anti-trans rhetoric it started with sport it started with trans women being included in women's sports but it never ends there well the guise was that it was about well sport and at the very and only about this at the very very beginning i even gave her the benefit of the doubt on the show saying well you said because she did say i will fight for trans people in every other aspect but not trans women playing women's sport and now she's throwing everybody under the bus she's throwing billy jean king under the bus Basically, anybody who doesn't agree is a misogynist. To kind of set the scene before we get into what happened this week, Martina has been an activist for women's sport for many years, for decades. In the late 2010s, she took up this issue of trans women being included in women's sport as one of her kind of one of her key issues. In 2019, she wrote a pretty famous op-ed in the Times of London for which she has apologized, to be clear, but she has backslid into even more inflammatory language since then. The op-ed back then, four years ago, said, quote, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. There must be some standards and having a penis and competing as a woman would not fit that standard. A woman can decide to be female, take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization is concerned, win everything in sight and perhaps earn a small fortune, and then reverse his decision and go back to making babies if he so desires. It's insane and it's cheating. A few things I want to call out here. Anti-trans rhetoric always, always goes to genitals. It always goes to the basest criticism. Having a penis. And Martina has talked about this a lot. The Women's Sports Policy Working Group has talked about this. They make this this uh, farcical, unscientific distinction between trans women who have had bottom surgery and who have not. That makes no difference in athletic performance. This is purely like a cultural and personal distinction they have made. Uh, I think it's key to pull out that this, this fictional man, this straw man that she's created, who's decided to be female and win all these women's sports competitions, he can go back and be a man uh and then have babies right so first of all you're denying their pronouns later in the in the article she even says i'm happy to address a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers but she violates that in the same paragraph she called this transgender woman he and so another one of the the things that the anti-trans platform hinges on is detransitioning they're trying to convince you that that is an incredibly common thing 
that a lot of people transition and then detransition. And even if that does happen, that doesn't invalidate trans people's experiences. So this had a lot of people upset back then. She apologized for it. But the thing is, the culture has changed so much that had she written this in 2023, she would not have to apologize. There are so many people who agree with her. Since then, she's joined the board of this organization called the Women's Sports Policy Working Group. It was formed, quote, to protect girls and women's competitive sport for biological females while accommodating trans girls and trans women through evidence-based, respectful criteria. And so this organization uses scientific language, exists on the plane of the respectable. But there are no trans people included on the board. There are no physicians included on the working group board. And so they have taken it upon themselves to offer amendments to the Equality Act and the Civil Rights Act, uh, which includes Title IX, of course. They propose that no trans girls who have begun male puberty can compete against girls or women because of the disadvantages that cis women would have. But the question of how to mitigate puberty, male puberty, is not something they address. So they talk about the theoretical, but in reality, trans kids are being denied medical treatment across the United States. And these bills that are being passed in many states across the U.S. are literally using Martina Navratilova's words to argue in favor of their their bills. They're quoting her op-ed from the Times of London in the bill. The working group, it's Donna DeVarona, Martina Navratilova, Donna Lopiano, Nancy Hogshead, Tracy Sundlum, Mariah Burton Nelson, And then on their website, they give you a full list of their supporters. So these aren't the people who are part of the working group, but they support their mission, presumably, right? Willie Banks, an Olympian. Juniper Eastwood, a trail runner, former D1 track and cross-country runner. Chris Evert. Joanna Harper. Diana Nyad, one of the greatest long-distance swimmers. Renee Richards. Sanya Richards-Ross. Sally Roberts, Lynn St. James, Pam Shriver, Inga Thompson, and Olympian Edwin Moses. I should say, to be fair, Martina and Sanya Richards-Ross have written op-eds in opposition to some of the anti-trans bills that are being passed in the United States, but this is not enough. This is not nearly enough, because I don't believe it, because actions speak louder than words. Like, I don't even want to talk about trans women in sports. I, I'm not trying to convince you at this moment because I know a lot of our listeners disagree with us. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. What I want to do is take a broader look because this has become incredibly sinister. It's expanded beyond sports into transphobic rhetoric in general. The problem with the working group, in my view, is that, okay, on the surface, they're making, they're living in the realm of science, supposedly, uh, respectability, but Martina and others' tweets and actions tell a different story. And the limitation to the working group is that they say, okay, like trans girls can compete if they have not gone through male puberty. But how are kids supposed to access medical interventions in the United States when people are literally using your language to pass laws against it. Martina Navratilova's name is actually being used in House floor discussions 
to legislate yeah. against trans people. A key strategy of this movement, which, uh, you know, I don't know if it started in the UK, but it certainly has a huge foothold in kind of English middle-class feminism. And I don't even, I, like, I don't even like the word TERF or the acronym because I don't find it very descriptive. I don't find these people to be radical feminists at all. I find them to be middle-class, moderate, even reactionary feminists. I don't find their politics to be revolutionary in any way. It's like, we got a foot in the door and fuck you. <laughs> the The duality here is like, the working group uses this high, irrefutable language. And it casts itself as evidence-based, and anyone who disagrees is just making decisions based on feelings. This is a, a very common right-wing strategy. Facts over feelings. When, Fuck your feelings, when right? The, the inverse is actually true here, right? Well, last time I read through the working group's site, I saw one peer-reviewed article cited. One. The fact is there is not enough science out there to say that th we have facts on our side. And again, I'm not making an argument for trans women in sports right now. I've made that argument before. What I'm arguing is that I don't understand why feminists are working in lockstep with the far right to make this happen. To, because to think that you are safe after you ban trans people from every public space, that's farcical. You say too just now that you're not interested in this argument about trans women's participation in women's sport. And part of why we've moved in that direction is because Martina herself has moved in that direction. Because she's shown now that it's not just about trans women's participation in sport. It's that her words and her retweets, her behavior in social media gives us the impression that she just doesn't believe that trans women are women, period. Despite what she said before in in more polite circles, right? Which leads us to this new batch of tweetings. Yeah, yeah. To give you a bit of insight as to how this all came to be on our end, I don't follow Martina Navratilova anymore, like for a while now. And as you may know, if you're on Twitter, Twitter's broken, like full on broken. Mm -hmm. Half the tweets that show up on my timeline are from people I don't follow. And so when this was happening, I saw all of it. There was this tweet that was decrying trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney being used on a billboard for Nike, uh, wearing a sports bra. Right. And so Martina quote tweets that and says, I guess Nike couldn't find a female athlete to sell sports bras. This has been going around the quote unquote gender critical community all weekend. And we could have a field day about the terminology gender critical, a masterful, <laughs> masterful self brand, because actually the people who are gender critical are the people who are disrupting gender, not the people who are trying to re-inscribe traditional gender roles. Um, that's not the point. The point is that a lot of people were upset about this trans woman being in an advertisement for f sports bras. I mean, they said she doesn't have breasts. What does she need them for? Uh, I guess they couldn't find a female athlete to sell them. This is misogynistic. This is one, one advertisement mm. from Nike, right? It's taking money out of women athletes pockets again one this is a very capitalistic form of feminism there's not much <laughs> not much critique about the status quo this is just like i want to be included in the money 
Uh, people are boycotting Nike for this, for one advertisement featuring a trans woman. People are arguing that, uh, I guess Martina is arguing based on her retweets, that Dylan's image and her personality is a parody of femininity. This is interesting to me because, like, what are you saying when a trans woman is supposedly a parody of womanhood, of femininity? You're saying that there is, like, there is an intrinsic type of womanhood that is acceptable. What is it? There were people in the 80s who said Martina was a man, said all sorts of vile, nasty things about her. Horrible things. And somebody responded to her tweet and said, Martina, if you remember correctly, similar things have been said about you. They have certainly been said about me. To which she replies, no, no such things were said about me. Which is not true. Like, she has suffered traumas untold. She's made it through. Like, she lost countless endorsements. I don't even want to think about the amount of money she lost after she came out in the 80s. I mean, like, trans women are not doing a, a parody of womanhood. What is womanhood? Is it, is it just having the correct sex organs? Because that's what it comes down to so many times in this quote-unquote gender-critical rhetoric. They so often go to genitalia and the lowest form of argument. I mean, Mariah Carey is doing a parody of womanhood. <laughs> like, no, really, I'm not joking. Like, yeah. Lady Gaga is doing a parody of femininity. Gender should be parodied. Mm -hmm. It gets worse. Somebody said to her, it's a bra. Who cares who wears it? I don't care what anyone else wears, nor should you. With so much else going on in the world, a bloody bra shouldn't matter. To which Martina says, who wears it is one thing. Getting paid for it at the exclusion of females who actually need one is another. Mm -hmm. So if Dylan had breast implants, right. would, she, would she merit an advertisement because then she needed it? Would a trans woman who was more quote-unquote real was more female presenting mm -hmm. would she deserve it i don't think so but it's constantly moving the goalpost right 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 like you get caught in one area you say well no it's actually that and and keep on s skipping the stone forward and out of out of your reach to be able to like really pinpoint what exactly it is that you're doing here martina right like i'm so tired of it because this is so beyond sports this is not arguing that you know, trans women are an, an advantage in sports. Now you're arguing that one trans woman did a Nike ad and she's disenfranchising women in general, that that was misogynistic by nature. It's the same argument that says Amy from Jeopardy, the trans woman mm -hmm. who was one of the greatest Jeopardy champions, that's an erasure of women, that one trans woman excelled at Jeopardy. The next retweet, I think maybe this is the worst one. This is from... Simi Mick, Martina retweeted this. This is what inspiration in sports looks like at Nike. Not a limp-wristed man who's never done a day's sport in his life, but a beautiful inspirational woman who shows grit and determination to get up after an error in fight on. Hashtag, trans women are con men. Martina retweeted this. Martina, who said she would always address trans women as they wished to be addressed. And a limp-wristed man? I mean... Why don't you say fag? That's what you meant, right? You meant fairy, <laughs> sissy, homo, poofter. Like, I should have put a trigger warning, but like, y you literally managed to be homophobic and transphobic in the same tweet. And by Martina's retweet, I'm assuming that she supports that kind of language. Well, what else could you do but assume? Well, exactly, right? Like, are you serious at this point? 
see, you're you're saying that gender is fixed, and so I'm a gay man. If my li- if my wrist is a little too feathery, if my voice is a little too gay, am I a fag? Well, that's the language that's been used against us right, for right. decades, centuries, right? Mm-hmm. That we are not performing or living up to the standard of masculinity that's needed or required to be a man in in this world. And so why as a woman whose womanhood has been questioned for decades, would you engage in this type of language? I think, like, I hope where we're going here is that laws and language that restricts trans women's movements and livelihoods always impact cis women as well. You're hearing tons of stories of cis women who get shouted out of bathrooms because they don't look womanly enough. Literally. Like, yes. So you can't be a butch woman because you're going to be harassed in a women's bathroom as a cis woman. And this is why. We just saw this with Daniel Radcliffe and his spouse. They announced her pregnancy and it became this huge witch hunt on social media challenging her femininity and whether or not she's quote-unquote actually a woman based on how she looks. You are furthering these ideas about there being one way to present as a woman. A lot of the people that Martina follows and and retweets on Twitter, they do this thing. It's like this subgenre of tweeting where they show you a a cis woman athlete and then they show you a trans woman and they're trying to highlight the differences in their body and how grotesque and disgusting this trans woman is, that she's a man, how could you think that's a woman? This is an incredibly dangerous trend. She retweeted one recently about Leah Thomas, and I guess the idea is to show that these trans women are real, really men, but the effect is to humiliate them, it's to dehumanize them. The LGB alliance uh, participates in this a lot, which is who Martina was retweeting on Christmas Day. A year and a half ago? You're literally erasing trans people with the title of your organization. Well, that actually is the point. Like, we exist as LGBTQIA plus continued. Mm. The LGB Alliance has been deemed a hate group. It is dedicated to the erasure of trans people from our community. It's dedicated to the lie that trans people have never been a part of our movement and our community. That is a lie The historical record will prove it. Trans women were the catalysts and the actors at Stonewall. It's it's absolutely insane. They're the ones who thought of us as a collective, despite them not actually reaping any of the benefits of the progress that we've made over the decades. They've fought in step with us over the decades. And this is how we turn around and treat them. But this is like, this is history repeating. You you can go on YouTube and look up a video of Marsha P. Johnson demanding, imploring a crowd in New York City at one of the first prides to be included because trans women were always part of the movement, but are always fighting against being excluded because they were uh, in affront to gender. Many of them were poor. Many of them were black and Latina. Uh, this middle class capitalist version of the the gay rights movement has always excluded people purposefully. It is incumbent on gay men specifically to do the work here, in my mind. Know that at every turn you will be called a misogynist. Yes. Like people who love and support women's sport, who pay for women's sport, you will be called a misogynist. 
if you support trans people. Right, but it is it is our duty. It is to do so. Yes, it it gave me some uh, some comfort today as I broke this story that uh, a group of forty professional athletes. This was organized by Athlete Ally, but included legends like Sue Bird and Megan Rapinoe sent an open letter opposing H.R. 734, and I'll get to that in a second, because it, quote, does not protect women in sports. H.R. 734 is a bill currently being debated that was brought by a Republican congressman in Florida and has, like, 94 Republican co-sponsors, and it looks to ban individuals whose biological sex at birth was male from participating in any school sports programs that are for women and girls. This goes further than the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, but it was so comforting to see cis women athletes come out against this. The letter said, quote, We urge policymakers to turn their attention and effort to the causes women athletes have been fighting for for decades, including equal pay, an end to abuse and mistreatment, uneven implementation of Title IX, and a lack of access and equity for girls of color and girls with disabilities. This highlights how narrow, how anti-intersectional the gender-critical movement is. Where I'm at with this is that it's time for specifically tennis to grapple with this, to grapple with Martina. You have an all-time legend of the sport, an all-time legend of any sport who is doing this. There can be no, well, we'll try and bury a a story of her celebrating some great achievement today and ignore all the rest. You know, like, Martina's out here calling out Billie Jean King. Nancy Hogshead, who is with her on this policy working group, she tweeted something, my quote, how dare you was for all the organizations hurting other members of their community, like Women's Sports Foundation, at Billie Jean King, at NWLC, at Equal Rights Advocate, at ACLU, at Women's Law Project, and so on. And Martina retweets that. Mm. So this is not taboo. Like, how dare you come for Billie Jean King and say she's hurting members of your community? I'm taken back to, I want to say it was Wimbledon a couple of years ago, where they were seated beside each other and they looked to be in some kind of heated argument <laughs> before the match. <laughs> and it was the type of reactions that you couldn't. You couldn't fake, right? Yeah. And this is what I imagined that conversation <laughs> to have been about. Yeah. For background, uh, Billie Jean King has has not touched a toe into this trans debate or the gender critical movement. She said, you know, trans inclusivity. Listen, the woman is, what, almost 80 years old? She's going to die being a progressive. Like, she's not going to ruin that legacy for anybody. My point here is that we are not the only ones. But it can't just be us and a handful of others right. talking about it's this. A, I mean, tennis has been so silent about this, as tennis is about so many things. Uh, the tennis establishment won't talk about abuse allegations, no matter how credible they are. I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm really fucking tired of this sport. There are a few people on Twitter who are willing to talk about this. We've, we've seen quite a few talking about it recently, because this latest barrage of tweets were just so abhorrent mm -hmm. that it gave license it gave cover for folks to be able to talk about it well right. like well because it's beyond, you're not reading between the lines it's beyond the sports debate right because that's heated it's complicated it's the science is unclear right but when you're talking about trans people's humanity 
that's that's different. Like it's time to say something. And I do not want to hear ever again that well, actually, Renee Richards said. Oh, because Renee, you know what? A rich Republican born in the 1930s. Sid Ziegler said, and I can tell you as a gay man, he doesn't speak for me. Oh, Caitlyn Jenner said. Exactly. Who Martina said, my friend Caitlyn Jenner. So I don't want to hear any of that. Aside from the very few trans people who are in lockstep with this movement. Which movement? Uh, what are you the talking? gender critical movement. Okay. I, I implore you to look at the other people who are in agreement here. They're not people you want to be associated with far-right legislators in the U.S. Republican Party, which at this point is an extreme far-right party, if you've <laughs> you've traded your values to march and step with these people, that has to give you pause. That has to make you at least ask the question, am I doing the right thing? I want to close this segment with something from that SI article today. And again, it was in response to this H.R. 734 bill. I know you quoted it previously, but I just want to reiterate what was written in this SI article. We believe that gender equity in sport is critical, which is why we urge policymakers to turn their attention and effort to the causes women athletes have been fighting for decades, including equal pay, equal pay, and end to abuse and mistreatment, two things front and center in tennis, uneven implementation of Title IX, and a lack of access and equity for girls of color and girls with disabilities, to name only a few. What would tennis look like if not for Venus and Serena Williams? What did the USTA, what did tennis governing, governing bodies materially do to make sure that people of color were included at the grassroots level? Uh, Billie Jean King and the original nine demanded and got equal pay at the US Open in 1973. What would women's sports look like without her? And so you're willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater because she supports trans women now? In 2023? 50 years later? And don't argue with me because Renee Richards. So, I, you know, I know this is not our normal subject matter and this is maybe not what you come to us for, but we're always going to talk about this. It, like, it takes so much energy to go through Martina's timeline and actually do research on this because it is so upsetting. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like for an actual trans person to do this. Right. We're, we're just like observers, right? We're supporters, people in our community. And I'm not here to tell you that I have the answers, that I know everything, that I know what it's like to be a trans person, that I know every issue, and that I'm on, I'm on top of everything, right? Or, the, or that we know what the requirements are to participate in women's sport, right? But I do know what hateful and abusive rhetoric looks like. I know who I should be taking my cues from. If you're still here, thank you for listening. And the last thing I want to say, I mean, I, I kept kicking the ball forward, not actually like hitting <laughs> the nail on the head. People in tennis need to speak to this specifically. Her peers, her co-workers, like this is on you now. And if you don't know what to say, like I, I would understand, if you don't know the language to use, steal it from somebody else. <laughs> no, seriously, like... Take arguments from somebody you value or you trust. Like, it, enough is enough. And that's often seen as a weakness, right? That, oh, you don't have any original thoughts of your own. Well, no, I don't have original thoughts of my own <laughs> right. on this because I'm not a trans person. Who, but who does? I like, need to read and listen to other trans people and people who've studied and done the work and know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, oh, I think I'm not going to be a sheep. 
like okay congratulations but, but like, that in itself sometimes, is a flock mentality it's exactly, a herd mentality it is because like sometimes people in your community which we don't have in in our society we don't have communities sometimes people in your community have the best answer to this mm-hmm. right like use other people's thoughts and credit them you know what i found another b for the title betrayal because that's what i feel <laughs> oh because i was i was trying to make a pun on bewitched bothered and bewildered uh-huh. yeah. oh bewitched betwixt betrayed bothered and betrayed betweenered but but <laughs> what well, you know we'll work it out yeah because that's what this is yeah like increasingly as a fan of martina navrata lobo as we have done so many shows about her and about her impact in tennis like oh it's really it's really it feels like such a betrayal as a queer person honestly uh she would say that we're the ones betraying women so you're like you can't win um Mm. anyway on a lighter note we we had a discussion about the title Mm -hmm. we love doing titles based on songs of course bewitched bothered and bewildered is one of my favorite all-time songs as is mine i love the share version i don't know that i know the share version do you remember in the history boys the protagonist did a rendition of that song as a a love song a torch song to somebody he couldn't have it was mm. devastating and the other the other option was rain down on me which i want you to know is not the lady gaga ariana no. song it's sisters a, it's sw with voices yes exactly thanks for listening my name is jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john and I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The Body Serve. You can find us everywhere at linktree.com slash, slash the body serve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.